The influence of marriage is formed depending on the profession, but no profession escapes it altogether. A young man generally is driven toward married life, but there is more to this driving force than what many think based on its disastrous misuse. There is a drive toward completion. If young people would know what marriage is all about, they would not be so hasty getting into it. It takes so much with everything it gives, and it burdens with so much. But the Lord ordered it so that no one can grasp the public mystery of marriage unless he has experienced it. Indeed, it is precisely these experiences under which manly souls will mature. Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills. Joining me today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz and the Reverend David Appled, to talk about Wilhelm Lay as the pastor, particularly the pastor's marriage. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, guys. Good to be on. Yeah, doing yeah, really well. Good to have you both on. Kind of a different podcast for us. Zelwyn is out today off hunting Yeti or whatever he does up in the frozen north. <laughs> I, I actually think he is the Yeti, just to be clear. <laughs> he, is, he is being pursued and could not record this evening. <laughs> There's a reason that there are no photos of anyone on this show. And one of, <laughs> one of those reasons is because some of us are cryptids. So <laughs> We can neither confirm nor deny that. But if the podcast ever disappears, remember, they got us and make yourself safe. <laughs> so, time now for gratuitous weather posting. Gentlemen, how's the weather out your way? We're having a nice little break from the Paducah summer. I think today the high was only 80. I have the windows open right now as we're recording. There's a nice cool breeze. It's a nice, it's a nice breath of fresh air. Very good. Adam in the Commonwealth. It's it's very nice here, as always. Very mild. We had a we had a guest speaker over the weekend at my church and he was making jokes about, oh, it's really nice right now, but I wouldn't want to be here in the winter. And I was just like, LOL, it's actually pretty mild. So And you were like, Hey, here's your plane ticket. Bye. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Take care, buddy. <laughs> State's full. Well, all right. So we're continuing on through Leah's the pastor. Leah conceives of the pastor as one should, as a fully orbed human being. So the last couple of episodes, we talked about the pastor's conduct in public and in private. And we're starting to get the idea of what the pastor should be as a man. And one of the things that is, or that ought to be a great blessing and benefit to the pastor is his family. And of course, family begins with marriage. So that in order to understand what it is to be a pastor, we also have to understand what it is to be married and a pastor. Now, there are still single pastors. We're going to talk about that, how things look different. Leah is actually very thorough in this section, wouldn't you guys say, with the things that he discusses? I think he touches, and it's very similar to the the previous chapter on the conduct of the pastor. He He kind of leaves no stone unturned. It's one of the benefits of being a Protestant is that our pastors are married. So, you know, if we, any of our Roman Catholic listeners are, are tuning in here, this is a discussion that doesn't really pertain other than to the Anglican ordinariate or the Eastern Rite, I suppose. It's interesting how this shakes out in the Reformation. And it's one of the very fun things to study is those early marriages of Protestant clergymen. Of course, the famous example is Luther's marriage, which you also have a an interesting story with Calvin's ill-fated marriage and John Knox's marriages, you know. So, you know, look that up if you want to. Maybe we'll put some links or something later. So where do we want to begin then with this discussion? Guys, when we talk about 
pastors in marriage, one of the first things, especially in our circles that comes up, is the idea of pastoral celibacy or even required celibacy. So does Leah have anything to say about that? It's actually where he starts. I, I don't know how frequent it would be. Like if you were not discussing like a pastoral theology book, I don't find people thinking too much about celibacy. <laughs> but in the pastoral theology books, it is something that must be brought up because you do have the biblical, you have the words of Jesus that talk about this being a reality, that there are some who have this gift. And then Paul himself talks about the advantage of celibacy. And then as you mentioned through the history of the church, you have this come up at different times. And especially for the Lutherans, like you mentioned with, with Luther, but many of those early Lutheran pastors were coming out of forced celibacy. And so you had this question, is it okay for a pastor to be married? That that I guess, you know, Leia, I don't know if it's a real live question for him, but he certainly starts there with celibacy. Yeah, and I mean, that's the question. Is, is it a live question for us? As you point out, it, it's not really something that our pastors are so focused on. And we need to remember, too, with regard to celibacy, that continency itself is a gift from God. It's We get the idea in the scriptures that it's not really the norm, although it does have its advantages, according to Paul. Would you like to? Would any of you like to talk about Paul for for a few minutes? What does Paul have to say about this, Adam? <laughs> I think that Paul recognizes what Leah also recognizes from church history, which is the advantage for the mission of the church of celibacy. That Paul foregoes what he understands as a right. Right? He talks about taking a wife, taking a believing wife as a right similar to his right to receive his living from the gospel. But for the sake of the mission, he puts both of those things aside. He does not take a wife and he supports himself as he's preaching the gospel. Leah sees that happening also in church history where he calls attention to the fact that Roman Catholic missionaries have gone places and conquered peoples partly because all they had to worry about was themselves. They were not concerned about a family, about children, about all of the cares that you have when you are a married man. So I think Leah understands well the advantage of celibacy. That's a separate question from requisite celibacy, which is pretty obviously repugnant to Paul. Paul talks about marriage and presumes in his instructions in the pastoral epistles that the pastor, the, the bishop, the overseer, generally is married, that he's the husband of one wife. So requisite celibacy isn't a live question for Paul or for Leah, but the advantage of celibacy, especially for the sake of difficult or dangerous circumstances, is very evident in both the New Testament and in Leah's pastoral theology. If celibacy has such great advantages, is it then the greater path? He talks about the, I can't remember the exact word he uses for it, but he says that celibacy, just like, here's the word, he says it can be used frivolously, and so can marriage for that matter. And he says, you know, you can look around and you can see the terrible effects if you enter into marriage in a frivolous way. And he says the same can be true if you, you know, refrain from marriage and then what Adam's talking about here, if, if you don't actually take advantage of the advantages, then it is of no advantage to you that you remain celibate. Yeah, I think I think frivolous celibacy, I, I want to be clear about this because I think that Roman Catholic priests get slandered in this regard. 
in in the present day, which is that the abuses connected to frivolous celibacy, which would result in incontinence and, and immorality that are chronicled, for instance, in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, or that Luther discusses, those are largely, it seems, concubinage and prostitution. Those are not what we would now describe as the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. Right. The issue with so many of the of the priests in, in those days was simply the housemaid was right. often more than the housemaid. Was, was that right? Was actually his his the mother of his children, right? That now, I, from what I understand, that happens in, for instance, Africa in the present day in the Catholic Church. But if you're talking about the United States, for instance, there's a vastly disproportionate number of sexual abuse cases, which are boys being abused by priests, far out of proportion to anyone's measure of homosexuals within the general population. So to me, that's not so much an issue of celibacy as sexual perversion among the clergy outside of what you might think of as simply garden variety concubinage, which is, which is more of the issue in the, in the Middle Ages and in, say, Africa today. Right, where concubinage doesn't go against nature, correct? In the way that, yeah, right. That, n- not saying it's moral, but simply right. to say that it is, it is, it is a natural thing instead of you know some sort of cabal that breeds and tolerates this right. particular form of degeneracy today. Right, right, and and so that the problem with what Leia would call frivolous celibacy is that a man is trying to enter into a state which can only be a supernatural gift. And the vast majority of men do not have that gift, which is why family formation is normal and holy for the vast majority of men. And that's the contention of, the, of our confessions, too, is that you, you simply cannot presume to be celibate if you are not given the gift of celibacy. Yeah. Right. right, so Leia would consider the gift of continency then to be what he calls pure celibacy. Right, right. right. Yeah, a wholesome celibacy. This is, uh, I, I don't know if this is funny or not. You guys can tell me if you've ever heard anybody talk about, I have the gift of celibacy, and then you you know, you know talk with them a little bit about it, and, he, and it turns out he just hasn't been able to get a date. Like he's tried, <laughs> but he's just, right. it's just not working out for him. Like that's not... That's not really being celibate. It just means <laughs> right. you're kind of yeah. striking out, buddy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's also, it's also, and we can get into this later, but, but Leia's discussion about how marriage changes a man and how it makes you well-rounded in a way that you don't have to be. And this doesn't really have, it doesn't have to do necessarily with sexual activity. It really has to do with living with a woman who is biologically made to be vastly different from you is that celibacy is for Leia useful for certain situations, but he talks about its disadvantages with most people's everyday lives, that it makes you unacquainted with certain central portions of people's lives and therefore should not even be looked for as like, yeah, this would be amazing if I had this. I just don't have it. So I don't I don't like when we get into what I think is the early church's unfortunate language of ranking states of life, because I can see celibacy as extremely useful for certain situations that I would never take my family into. But for advising most people on most of their lives, having a family as the vast majority of people do is extremely useful to me as a pastor. 
Well, there are certain vocations under the pastoral office where it just simply would be easier if a man was single. One thinks of something like military chaplaincy. Right. That's not to denigrate our good married chaplains and everything, but the single man isn't worrying about coming home to a wife and children. His mind is freer in that regard. Yeah. And there there are other vocations. I would argue that missionary in many ways is easier without a family. And yet you wonder, though, you know, where then lie the advantages of a, of marriage from a pastoral perspective? So let's let's get into that as we're we still have a few minutes left in this segment. Let's get into that. What are then some more advantages of marriage? And vocationally speaking, what are the the advantages of marriage? Yeah, I mean Adam touched on this a minute ago. You do come to have a a more intimate experience of what most people are going to be going through as well, right? So when you're giving pre-marriage counseling or or marriage counseling, it really does help that you've lived through it yourself. That's not to say, I mean, Paul can speak very clearly about the married life. So it's not to say that it can't be done, but people will listen to you, I think, better if you can say, or maybe not even have to say, but if they can see in your own life, yeah, this guy knows what it's like. So it gives you the advantage of being able to speak from experience about marriage. Does marriage teach patience? Yeah, it has to, because you have to deal with someone who is your own flesh and blood, but very different from you. There's no there's no way around that. I think it also functions in that way to make the pastor a better example to the flock, that in a happy marriage, in a blessed marriage, he is exemplifying for the church what he seeks to train them to to be and to live. When that is not the case, everyone sees it. This goes back to something that we talked about talked about on other episodes, which is the notion that the fishbowl is not really optional. As a pastor, you are an example regardless, in the same way that as a father, you are an example to your children regardless. So you might as well try to be the best example that you can be either to the congregation or to your children, rather than complain about the fact that they're looking to you as an example. And when you're learning something like patience, and you can model that or you can describe that to a couple that has no patience with each other and you can lay out, you know, well, this is, this needs to be your attitude or these need to be your steps or, you you know, you need to talk about this before you go to bed rather than four days later when you're still angry about it, stuff like that. It's very practical. You're not going to know that unless you've done it. There's just, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's like, you know, it's like setting up and taking down communion, right? When you're first ordained, you may never have done that before. You don't really know how all the pieces fit together and where the napkins go and stuff. Until you do it. And then you do it, and it's like second nature. But it's one of these things that you don't know until you actually do. Since pastors are men, does marriage provide a greater insight into dealing with women? I think it does. And and this is a point that Leah makes, I think, very well. He talks about the the different kind of insecurities that a single man might have and how marriage can sort of free you from that. One of those being, you know, if you're married, then you're not worried about, at least not in the same, to the same degree, you're not worried about how things are going to look if you're speaking with this woman or that woman, because that's just, you, you don't have to think about that because you say, well, I'm, I'm married. Everybody knows I'm married. And it's not in my mind to think like this is a potential person who I could marry <laughs> because it's all, that's already secured. 
How does Leah put that? He uses some interesting words there. That's where he says the sickly, sensitive desire that clings to many who never had their own wife. Right. Yeah. Sickly, sensitive desire. I think that one difference between our time and Leah's is that since the 1960s, sexual activity between any two or more adults could theoretically be possible at any time, could be thinkable. I think pastors have to be a lot more circumspect about how they deal with women than they had to be in Leia's time, because there could be constant suspicion. And an accusation can end your career. I mean, men are presumed guilty until proven innocent, essentially. You have to be extremely careful about that, rather than let yourself be subject to potential openings for slander. That I, th- I think that is very different from Leia's time. I think, too, one of the things, I don't know if he would ex- explicitly say it this way, but when you are married, you do have a, um, a better insight into like the, the female psyche. Yeah. And I know that that's, that may be, well, you can't generalize or whatever <laughs> the spirit of our times might say but about you that, can. but it's true. Yeah, yeah it's right. absolutely <laughs> true. And even even though we're told like men and women, they're not all that different, I think in most people's minds, there still is this mysterious, there is a mysterious aspect to the mind of a woman. And when you're married, you do you come to know that in a deeper way, more clearly, and it does take away some of the he he calls them the sickly sensitive desires but it's it also takes away some of the maybe some of the myths that you might have bought into like women are always this way or always that way well when you're married to a woman you can cut through some of that stuff and say oh you know this is actually how they are all right and with that we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back with more word fitly The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, David Apple, to Adam Kuntz talking about the pastor's marriage. So once we get through the general advantages and disadvantages of celibacy versus marriage, then we start to look at how it pertains to the pastor specifically. And one of the qualifications for a pastor, according to the Lord's Word, is that he be the husband of of one wife. Now, Leah's perspective here is very interesting. How does Leah understand this verse? He sees husband of one wife as not so much an issue about whether or not a man has one wife who dies and then he takes another wife, which is 
the classic exegetical question about 1 Timothy 3. But Leia is at pains to stress that the Roman Catholic understanding of mandatory celibacy or the Eastern Orthodox understanding that if you are not married and you are headed for ordination, you must get married in order to be ordained are both wrong. If you desire to be married in the Eastern Orthodox, you must be married prior to ordination. Otherwise, the gates close. Right, yeah. Ordination is a shutdown for your marital possibilities if you're not already married, right? So he's at pains to discuss that. I believe that that is a question, especially in the circles that Leia is running in. What would, within an Anglosphere context, be termed high church, although that's not not quite the operative word in Germany in the 19th century. But these difficulties, differences between various Christian traditions usually are resolved by high church people, certainly in the Oxford movement in England, in favor of Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox norms. There's a lot of, let's just say, very strange stories that could be told about Anglo-Catholic priests and their marriages. (laughs) Once you start digging into Newman, it gets a little... Well, yeah, Newman was never married. Okay, Newman, it just gets weird. Yeah, Newman weird. has his own has his own problems, but there were there were, for instance, Anglo Catholic priests who became convinced that marriage was wrong for a priest, and therefore would live in early church terminology, where this also sometimes happened. Such was the veneration of celibacy. They would live with their wives as quote brother and sister for you know the last forty years of their marriage. So it, it it all gets very strange pretty quickly. Yeah, this exists up into modern times in Rome. Yeah. I mean, this is still, it's rare today, but you still saw plenty of examples of it, say, in the 19th century. So it's not exactly a healthy thing to live apart from what God has ordained and established as a pillar and foundation of civilization and creation. Right. Not to put too fine a point on it. Not to put it. too fine a point on it. But yeah. But I, I think I think one thing that when you're looking at Leia's section on conditions for marriage, one thing to realize is that divorce is not really a thinkable option for him in hardly any case for anyone, and definitely not for a pastor. So he doesn't really deal at much length with the question of what if what if a man is divorced, can he then be a pastor? Simple because it doesn't really enter into the discussion at all. In its historical context, and this, this holds true to the United States up until only a few decades ago, divorce was culturally unthinkable. It was taboo and, lar- and it was a legal difficulty. You had to show cause and you had to have, frankly, a just cause. So we live in the age of no-fault divorce Entering into marriage is rather easy, and then getting out of a marriage is particularly easy. I don't know that Leia could even have envisioned a society quite like ours. It just didn't enter into his thinking. He mentions it briefly, but he mentions it like this. He says, those who have trampled underfoot the Lord's command, and then he just moves on. <laughs> so so yeah. the, this whole section is talking about, it revolves around the passage, what does it mean to be husband of one wife? And for us, I think a lot of times that leads us into the into the discussion of can a pastor be divorced and remarried? And for him, like you guys are pointing out, it's that's not really the issue. The issue is what if your wife dies? Can you remarry after right. you know, after your wife dies? Right. Which for Leah, 
that was his life, right? His wife died when she was relatively young. I don't know how old he was, but I, I think the potential would have been for him to remarry and he he never did. Correct. But that wasn't that wasn't because of his understanding of what is it, I think it's first Timothy three. Yeah. Because he makes very clear in the book that if your wife dies, you are you can be remarried without being considered to be a polygamist or something like that. Right. That is the classic question about 1 Timothy 3, the more modern question about divorce and remarriage. It's important to stress that Leah sees the existence of the marriage as part of the man's agency, the man's responsibility. So when he describes divorce, as you said in passing, the phrase that he uses is a man who who willfully dissolves his marriage. He seems not to consider that the man could be a passive sinned against party altogether in dissolving a divorce. Now, that may have to do with legal arrangements in the 19th century or simply Leia's theology of man's headship within a marriage, but he doesn't really consider it a live option at all. What do we do with it today then? And since the definition of marriage is so fundamentally different, and we are the kings of equivocation these days in exegetical circles. How do we approach this then today? I think you have to look at it and not only ask what are, what are the classic questions. I think that's why the history of interpretation is helpful for understanding passages. You know, why, why is our age uniquely interested in asking a certain question that hasn't come up much before, if at all, right? Why why were divorce and remarried pastors not a question before? And then once you kind of do that work, I think it's also important to say another passage that Leah doesn't really bring up, but is more pertinent in the case of divorce, is about managing one's household well. And that responsibility is placed on the man in First Timothy 3. And so if that household falls apart man's responsibility persists even if he is not in terms of let's say first corinthians 7 the guilty party so that's the issue in divorce regarding a pastor is not simply the adjudication of innocence or guilt as it is in the case of divorce in other places in the new testament it's also the question of capacity for management that is the question and the church capital c goes back and forth and all over the place on this. The Lutherans do it. The Eastern Orthodox are all over the place on divorce. <laughs> yeah, with economia, that's that's their that's their fancy term for we can kind of make this right. say what we want it to, depending on the situation. It might be helpful to the listener to know that also in the Roman Catholic Church, obviously not among the clergy, but among the laity, some giant percentage of the world's annulments are awarded to American Roman Catholics. So the whole question of the legitimacy of divorce among practicing Christians, also among Christian clergy, is more of an issue in America than I want. I would venture to guess almost anywhere else in the world. I don't actually think exegetically it's that difficult of an issue. I think it's more an issue of what we do practically. Also with men who have been whether they're Eastern Orthodox or Lutheran or whatever, who are already ordained under some set of interpretations that are not operative at all for Leah, but have become operative in the church since then. It's a practical mess in that way, is what I would say. Sure. David, anything to add? I think what would be interesting to know is like, so Leah is sending men over to America, just a historical aside to the question. 
was he ordaining men in Germany and then sending them to America no. or was he just training them there and then he would send them over here? He was training them as what he called emergency helpers. And then they were, if they right. found an Orthodox church body, to seek ordination if called upon to serve. And pretty much in every case, they were called upon to serve. But the emergency helper is already a kind of an evangelist or a catechist or it's not an innovation. Yeah, it's not a, a lay-in innovation, really. It, it sounds like it, because I think it's presented that way sometimes. But the office of evangelist, as the church understood it, is rather similar to this. We, we've had this throughout history. I just wanted to bring that point up, because when we say it like that, we don't really have... That's so far away from the way our calling and ordinations and pastoral training works. The reason I bring that up is because this question, like Adam says, it's a practical mess. It's an especially practical mess for those who are in a position where they are either ordaining individuals or they're like overseeing the ordained people, right? So like the, the parish pastor, yes, we I have the responsibility to teach, but I don't have the supervision of, you know, the 115 pastors in my district. And, and so I was just curious how much this question would come up for Leah, which I, I guess it's an anachronistic question is part of what we're, we're getting at. I think that the question of divorce also among the clergy is one of those things that you could find almost in any age where you find married clergy, because you're going to have marriages that break down, that are poorly managed. Leah is pretty eloquent on the misery of a dysfunctional marriage as I think any parish pastor could be, not necessarily from personal experience, but yeah. from acquaintance with other people's utter dysfunction and misery. I think that it's it's simply a statistical probability that since you've always had married clergy in greater or lesser numbers throughout the Christian world, you have had utterly dysfunctional marriages. The question practically is, how do you handle those things? The American church, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Episcopalian, whatever, generally leans in favor of permissiveness, as the American church usually does ethically in most regards with most realms of life having to do with marriage or anything else. I think the exegetical question and then the theological question and then the practical question is, is that actually what the Bible seems to be entailing by one wife managing household well? And then you have to figure out, well, what do you do with that? And I'm not going to sit here on a podcast and say, well, here's the five steps we're going to take. But I am, I, <laughs> I, am, I am happy to say that I don't think that the answers that we have given are actually serving anybody well. Because the issue of, that Leah brings up is the, is the term above reproach. And above reproach does not mean that you are morally sinless, right? This goes back to a distinction Zelwyn made on a previous podcast about the difference between blamelessness and sinlessness. And the scripture does maintain that a man can be blameless in his generation, not that he can be sinless since the fall. To be above reproach means basically, in a pastor's case especially, that the congregation doesn't have anything to hold over your head. That if you are divorced, or you have a bad temper, or, or you are an alcoholic, they're going to have something to hold over you, and that will decrease, if not in some cases, destroy your effectiveness in the proclamation of the word. Frankly, these are 
actual things to hold over you, not necessarily perceived right. things because people right. are going to, right. to, you know, they can find any, yeah. they don't like your haircut or whatever right. and hold it over right. you. We're not talking about, we're not talking about gossip or slander. We're talking about things that have happened in your life or that are going on in your life are contrary to the word of God and you know it and they know it. And so they kind of have you, they have you cornered in that regard. That's the practical valency of above reproach is that you need that in order to have the freedom to operate as you need to as a pastor. I think we've said enough on that subject. Since we understand then that the pastor needs to be the husband of one wife, how then does a pastor go about finding a wife? What should a pastor look for in a wife? Selecting a wife. I mean, we, it sounds like we're shopping here, but <laughs> you know, most of us here actually courted you know, our wives. I don't think anyone at Word Fitly was in an arranged marriage or anything and got to skip over this part, but we all had a say in who we proposed to. So what should a pastor be looking for in a spouse? He talks a lot about in this section, he talks about the the pastor has to be in a position where he can support his wife. And he okay. has to, he talks so much about that, that he has to say, look, I'm not saying that money makes the marriage, but if you're not in that position, you shouldn't be considering marriage. So that just putting that out there, there's lots of stuff in this section. He talks about the length of engagements. And it was just funny because you you bring up, he even is speaking in terms of selecting and acquiring. A wife. Right. Well, I mean, but, but that is a very salient point. If a man has to run his household well to be a pastor, that entails being able to actually support a family as a pastor whatever that looks like, might be a bivocational situation. I don't think that Leia is calling us to go out and find sugar mamas or, or to court the elderly widow or something <laughs> like that. It's, it's to actually be, be wise here when yeah. it comes to our shekels. You know, what does that look like? What is, is the economy of the home important for a pastor? And of course, Leia's answer is that it is a resounding, resounding yes. I'm not exactly trying to plug Dave Ramsey here, but some basic financial instruction and knowledge is, is of course, good for any household, but especially the pastors, especially, you know, in a, in a day and age where perhaps we're going to see more bivocational roles, or perhaps we're going to see salaries shrink, that sort of thing, something a man has to take into consideration. And of course, any man worth his salt is going to do what he needs to do to take care of his family, right? And to support his family, legally speaking. You know, you say that nowadays and people think of, I don't know, they think they're Jean Valjean all the, all the, all the sudden or Superfly or something like that. You know, <laughs> young blood priest who's trying to get one big score and then he'll go legit. He's got to take care of his people. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I'm so completely lost right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Join the club. Okay. Adam. All right. It's okay. Check it out. IMDB. You know, you'll, you'll look it up. Who would have thunk that Zelwyn is actually the one who who understands your references better than the guests on the show, Willie? Right. Or he's just good at pretending, you know? <laughs> he's such a nice guy. So <laughs> He's a great guy. We miss him. Zelwyn, we can't wait if to have you listening. back. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know where you are, buddy, but we hope you're safe. On some dusty trail in the Dakotas, off to shepherd your flock, we know that you're listening to Word Fitly, and we're thinking about you, bud. Anyway, back to this thing. Yeah, so first, the pastor must be prepared and willing to support a spouse. So now the pastor wants to go about selecting one. So we just have a couple minutes in this segment. We'll continue it on to the next one. What's the number one thing, very briefly, that the Christian should look for, especially the pastor should look for in a spouse? 
he, he's very brief on this. He says, the number one thing is the fear and love of God. Imagine that Christians ought to marry sincere Christians. Yep. Yep. Then he, then he mentions briefly education and capability. He doesn't elaborate on that at all, but that's what he mentions. The third one he says is that you should marry a woman who understands the pastoral office to some extent, yeah. right? understands the, the yeah. standing, the calling, what it's going to entail. You know, what are the, what are the unique challenges of being married to a pastor? Yeah, she has to actually know what she's getting into. If the prospective wife is in the Word, is a devout Christian, is attending church, does have the fear of the Lord, she might just might have a better grasp of what it means to be a pastor's wife, no? It could help, you know? Yeah. It could certainly help. The last thing he mentions, and he actually, this is the one that he elaborates on of all these things, this is the one he elaborates on, is attraction. There should be some attraction. And, yeah. you know, he doesn't make a big deal about, you know, like, but he does have an extra paragraph on, I guess, the the effect of a marriage without attraction and how detrimental that is. And so there there has to be some kind of attraction. Yeah, you should at least actually like one another. There's nothing sadder than a marriage that looks like you picked each other because you were the last two kids picked for dodgeball. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not what you want to go with, there should be some compatibility, some genuine desire for one another. Again, all practical things, but sadly things that we need to actually, you know, say out loud here in the current year. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. You are listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grills, David Apple, Adam Kuntz talking Leah on the pastor's marriage. So we talked very briefly about selecting a spouse, and it was fitting because Leah's very brief. So now the pastor has found a suitable spouse who fears and loves the Lord, who understands the pastor's vocation, and who is attracted to him, and he attracted to her. They are married. They are in the parish. What do now? Well, Leah makes this interesting distinction, and it's one that I believe we can understand. It's that distinction between the parish wife and the pastor's wife. David, what does that mean? I'll leave it to you guys if you want to pronounce the German, but he he says that these are two very different things. The wife should not be considered to be married to the parish. She's not everybody's wife. She's not everybody's mom. She's the pastor's wife and the mother of his children. He gets into the the different German terms that get used, but we can we can see this in our own times, right? If the pastor's wife is expected to 
you know, take care of all the details of the parish. That's the idea of the parish wife. And that's really not what she's supposed to be doing. She doesn't have a call outside of her family. She doesn't have a ministry except to her husband and children. Right. It's a simple saying this, that she is the pastor's wife, not the pastor's wife, right? You know, we don't want to run those two things together like, well, there are wives, but then there are pastor's wives. No, she is the pastor's wife, the wife of him. Her calling, her vocation is his wife and, of course, mother to the children, also heavily implied in marriage. It's as simple it's as simple as that. And Adam, you bring up a good point by talking about vocation or calling, rather, because we've sort of elevated the pastor's wife into some kind of biblical office that it isn't. You know, some churches might even refer to her as the first lady. Really? Yeah. 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 So, you know, getting to certain other types of churches, you start hearing that. So, yeah, she gets lifted up and it's a bit unfair to her. It puts a burden upon the woman that God certainly doesn't. Sometimes there's some undue pressure, undue stress placed upon the wife of a pastor simply because of this idea that the pastor's wife is some kind of auxiliary office of the church. Yeah. He even says, this has become so expected that, you know, I'm only going to write about it in my book so that I can clarify that this shouldn't really be a position (laughs) in a pastoral theology book. (laughs) So he's got this parish wife, pastor's wife distinction. Leah also makes a distinction between a deaconess and a pastor's wife then, which is going to be important. There is a role that a woman has in the church or an office, we'll say. Do we want to say office? Is that What, what terms are we supposed to use for the deaconess today in the official style manual? Is it an auxiliary? I don't think it's an auxiliary office, is it? I honestly don't know. I, I'm not sure... Because there's a difference between how the church talks about things and then how the IRS talks about things. I don't, <laughs> right, right. No, but I mean, it is significant to say if you're going to talk about deaconesses that Leah is, by most accounts, one of the major revivers slash innovators in having deaconesses in the Lutheran Church. Right. So Leah's conception of a deaconess is what he talks about. A widow, or perhaps a, a childless woman, who is completely dedicated to caring for the poor and the sick. And so he says, you know, this is, this is going to be different than the pastor's wife, because, that, because obviously she's not a widow. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> and he's obvious. making this distinction because so many in his day are saying, well, these duties should fall to the pastor's wife. Right. He's saying, no, here are the deaconesses, and they serve that function within the church at large. And it's a good function for them to serve. It is a, it's a holy thing to do, to care for the sick, the needy, the other widows. In his understanding, deaconesses within the Lutheran church would then be serving many of the same functions as Roman Catholic nuns without necessarily a vow of perpetual celibacy. They, they, in fact, he, he pretty much assumes they will be widows. Right. And in those days, if they weren't, if they did decide to get married, they were no longer considered a deaconess. They left the, the order, right? Yeah, I think so. That, that That's what I understand, but I'd have to look that up. Yeah. But they're mutually exclusive is what he's assuming, is that being married because it implies service to husband and children is mutually exclusive with being a deaconess. Right. 
Yeah, a very different conception from what Deaconesses today are. It's a very different model. Like you say, it's it's analogous to Roman Catholic nuns. So they are childless, whatever that looks like. They are unmarried and totally dedicated to this service in a way that, you know, a married person couldn't be just by nature. It's right. the way it is. Right. So, all right. So we've got that. If the pastor's wife isn't married to the parish, and if the pastor's wife is not a deaconess, what then is the goal of the pastor's wife? The goal is to support the pastor, especially in the care of the home. And he uses the great biblical word, help meet. I don't know if that's just the translation that we have in English here, but he uses that quite often here, that the the wife of the pastor helps her husband carry out his job, especially by caring for the home. Right. Well, that's very chauvinistic of you guys to say, end of Leah, <laughs> to assume that, that a wife would just be home and taking care of the family. Is that not... Is that not degrading to her? Does she not have greater goals beyond that? Yeah, he he talks about this being a small, modest goal or seeming to be a small and modest goal. But I think that this, the paragraphs that he has dedicated to this are probably his most effusive paragraphs. He talks about it as the wife can transfigure the home. The way that he praises the pastor's wife who, who does this, makes this her goal and her calling and does it well. If our listeners have the book, just read it because he, he's very, he praises this as a high and, and holy calling. I think it's also based on Leah's understanding that men and women are not simply different in the sense that they function differently or they think differently or they feel differently, but that they're different also in what kinds of goals they naturally will want to pursue in life. And his thought is that men are not completed by their marriage in the same way that women are. Whereas for women, the goal is the family, which you can see in the precision with which mothers will be concerned about things like family photos in a way that fathers never are. The man, while marriage is, in for the vast majority of men, so necessary to their lives, is not the goal of their activities. The goal of what they're doing is their work in the world, is the things that they make or the things that they say or the things that they do. There's an underlying understanding of men and women as differently ordered toward different ends in life that are complementary but distinct that Leia's working with. So modern presumptions about basic sameness I think is a good way to say how modern people think about things. It's not just equality abstractly, it's sameness that we presume. He doesn't presume that men and women are at all the same, and therefore he doesn't see them as having the same goals or needs or ends in life. Very good. So then, if the wife is primarily to be at home, does the wife have a part in her husband's ministry? This is something that we hear often. You, it's kind of become almost a cliche. It's like saying we're pregnant when the wife's pregnant. So you'll oftentimes hear <laughs> a, pa- a, a pastor's ministry referred to as our ministry, right? Along with his wife. So Pastor Bob and Sheila, their ministry of 75 years at, you know, St. Aloysius Lutheran Church of Zion, Texas or whatever. I really, I'm pretty sure that's not a real church. If it is, sorry to the people in St. Aloysius. But, you know, you hear it 
all the time, our ministry. Is that an apt term? Is that a healthy way to look at the wife's role in the pastor's ministry? No, I think he's quite clear that this that that's not the way that the wife, I don't know, does he use the word participate? Now that I think of it, I can't remember. She does take part in his ministry, but she is not, she's certainly not called into the pastoral ministry. What he says here is that she takes part in his ministry kind of the same way everyone else does, but in a more intimate, like more close way, right? She has a front row. She sees things from the inside that everyone else only sees from the outside. So he'll start off this section by saying, look, the pastoral office is something that everyone watches and everyone talks about. And so the wife is going to notice and see what her husband is doing in the same way that everyone else does. But then she's also going to have the added the added insight or the added perspective of she lives with the pastor and she sees the people. I think part of this is, you know, the idea that the pastor would be doing, would be having parts of his visitations in his own home that maybe we don't have anymore. I don't know in a parsonage, Willie, you're the only one of us who has a parsonage. I don't know how much you have meetings at home. We don't, but you can tell that the parsonage was built with the idea that meetings would be done in the home and counseling would be done in the home because as you come in the foyer, you enter right into the the historic pastor's office and everything in the rest of the house can be shut off from it. So actually where I'm recording now in the the, the historic pastor's office of the parsonage, that's where people would come to announce for communion or confession and absolution, things like that. As far as I know, elders meetings and such were held oftentimes, if not in the sanctuary, also in in the home office. So the home very much more connected in the old days than it was. Now, of course, now here, you know, we don't use the, the parsonage for church business anymore. The church has been expanded since the 1880s and <laughs> since the early 1900s. So we have the extra space now. But yeah, that connection between the home and the parish was much more intimate in Leah's time. I think you're right. And then the wife naturally then, you know, she sees behind the curtain. And what he goes on to say is then, especially with those who are suffering, you know, those who the pastor is seeing regularly, whether they're sick or suffering from some spiritual condition, whatever it might be, the pastor's wife is going to see that more frequently. And then naturally, she's going to have more opportunity to show some Christian care or Christian love towards the poor, the sick, the needy. So we've got that under wrap then. So now we've got a few minutes left. Let's talk about some hot takes. Let's have a few hot takes, guys. What are the ways that the wife of a pastor can either help or hinder his ministry, according to Leah and according to your own wisdom? Who wants to go first? I think that she can certainly help his ministry by hearing some of the things that are going on with him. But there's always a very fine line that the pastor should be attentive to in not sharing too much. I think one of the consequences of the clergy isolating themselves from one another is that they have to unburden themselves to someone. And when you unburden yourself to your wife, she will naturally take your side in everything. And Leah makes a pretty good point if an unusual point in talking about the wife being overly partisan. And that not only warps her understanding of church and makes 
being a member of the congregation that much harder for her, it also warps the pastor's understanding of himself, such that having too much cheerleading can cause him not to be attentive to his own vices or faults in any given situation or in his general conduct. So I think that I think that if there's a good reason to talk to other pastors regularly, whether it's over the phone, over the internet, or you know, in person at conferences and circuit meetings and stuff, is because there are other people who know exactly what it is that you do on a daily basis, and you can talk to them about it. Your wife doesn't exactly know what you do on a daily basis, and you really shouldn't unburden yourself to her with all of that and thus burden her with all of that. One of the things that Leah brings out and and speaks very I mean he's an eloquent guy, right? In everything that he writes, he's very eloquent. But one of the one of the points that he brings up is that the wife of the pastor, Adam just mentioned there is a vice to this cheerleading, but there's also a virtue here when he knows that his wife supports him, not in a partisan way but that she loves the, her pastor and she loves the work that he does. It is another motivation for a man. I mean, every every husband wants his wife to think highly of him, right? Not in a in a false way or in a contrived kind of a way, but the pastor's wife who values the work of a pastor, just by valuing that work, helps the pastor to also say, I'm going to do, I want to do my job well. Right now, of course, we would say, well, the pastor should always want that, right? He has to please God. <laughs> He's in service of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't obliterate the other kind of horizontal things, right? Where you do you do want your wife to say, I'm married to a good pastor, right? Not a lazy pastor. And so he'll talk about the wife who urges her husband forward, who doesn't pamper him, who doesn't give him kind of false compliments so that he thinks I'm better than I really am. And and I think that that's a that's a minor thing to mention here at the end, but it's something that's that's worth bringing up. One of the great recoveries of the Protestant Reformation, at least for the Church in the West, was bringing back the pastor's wife, bringing back married clergy. It did correct a number of abuses, and it also restored the biblical balance that God has made. It's restored the biblical economy, and we ought to thank God for raising up the Protestant Reformation for that. The devil will always seek to destroy the good things that God has built up. That includes the institution of the family, but it also includes the individual families that make up our parishes, in particular the pastor and his family. So we ought to be diligent for praying for all of our members, but specifically for our pastors, that they be good examples both in the parish and in the home that God sustains them. We should likewise be praying for the pastor's wife because more and more that vocation is probably looked upon with derision even more so than the vocation of the pastor, especially when the wife is at home tending to the children. You have two vocations there, three vocations really, that are passe in our current context, that of the pastor, the shepherd of the flock, that of wife, and then of course that of mother. So remember to pray for your pastors and remember to encourage the pastors that you do know or to encourage those who would seek to be pastors to follow the biblical economy when it comes to the home and to the family. The church runs better and it is God's will that we live according to his word. Gentlemen, any final words before we wrap this up? I think that when you're talking about the marriage of a pastor, it is 
even more so than anyone else because the pastor necessarily is a good or a bad example. The pastor's marriage can really make his life much better than it would otherwise be. It can strengthen him, it can support him, and his wife can be a wonderful helpmeet to him. His marriage can also break him very signally. We talked about divorce, but even just misery, strife, dissension in the home, extremely difficult children, whatever it may be, family life, like so many other things about a pastor's person, can make or break him to a degree that is beyond what a lot of people go through. So I think that if you're listening to this and you are a pastor, not only to pray for pastors as everyone should, but to keep a close watch on yourself is extremely important because it's in these basic, and I don't mean simple or simplistic, but fundamental things of life that everyone's life consists, and especially for one whose life is above reproach and a living example to the flock, to be very careful about things like this and to understand that it could be possible that one day you're not a pastor, but it's not actually possible until death do you part that you would not be the husband of your wife. So pay careful attention to these things. David, any final words? That just makes me think of what we did on the last episode with Leah, where you have this distinction between private and public conduct, right? And the the private life of the pastor kind of gives the charge to his public ministry, right? So your devotional life leads into your preaching and your teaching. And I think there's something very similar here with especially what you just said, Adam, the marriage, the home life of the pastor, when it's functioning harmoniously, is a great charge to the more public kind of professional life. But it can work the other way around too. Yeah, just the significance of marriage and family on the pastor, even though you know, you might want to try to draw a real sharp division between like what goes on at home and what goes on at church. It doesn't really actually work out that way. <laughs> right. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Always, always fun having you on. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with David Abeld and Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless. The official business of a pastor is more popular than that of any other man. Everybody keeps an eye on it. Everybody takes part. How should the pastor's wife not take part in it? She is also a parishioner, and she stands at the head of all female parishioners, so to speak. Her marital relationship does not bring her that close to her shepherd that she would forget that he is her shepherd. Yet her participation in everything that concerns the congregation and the holy office is heightened by her intimate connection with the pastor. Here, in the relationship of the pastor's wife to the office of her husband, lies the most beautiful affirmation.